It's lovely to see you all this morning. It's a lot sunshinier here in this room with all of you than it is outside. I'm delighted to, to be with you again. I'm super excited to get to teach again this morning and, uh, and excited to see what God's going to do through our study of 2 Corinthians together. Uh, just one quick announcement. I know many of you have loved attending the Devoted Hearts Conference every April with us. Registration for this year's conference is now open, and we are expecting it to sell out like it does pretty much every year. So do go. It's The website to buy tickets is devotedheartsrochester.com, devotedheartsrochester.com. The speakers this year are Whitney Capps and Jada Edwards, and the musical guest you may be familiar with, it's the band Sela. So if you are Sela fans and you'd like your chance to see them perform live in person right here in our own church, come on out and get your tickets for Devoted Hearts. The conference is in April, so you have time, but this is a great time to be prepared for that. Uh, as we get started, let me just bow in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together this morning and to study your word. I pray that you would help us to set aside the things that are on our minds, the things that are on our hearts, so that we can just focus on you and your word. And we ask that you would illumine the scriptures to us this morning, that you would speak to us through them, and that we would be encouraged by what you have for us this morning. Amen. Have, have you ladies ever heard of imposter syndrome? Is it who in here? Oh, I get to tell you something new. Okay, the younger gal table over here knows about imposter syndrome. This is something, it's a phenomenon that's becoming more and more popular these days. And it's that kind of feeling that no matter how qualified you are to do something, you still have that sense of like, maybe I'm not really good enough to do this. It's that kind of doubting your competence, regardless of your track record of success or your qualifications. It's kind of thinking that sooner or later, Maybe all of the things that you've done right before were just kind of because you either got lucky or you had a connection with the right person and sooner or later they're going to figure out you're really not as confident. I see some of you already nodding your head. The estimates is that up to 70% of us feel this way. So if you're relating to this, you are in good company. Maya Angelou, Michelle Obama, Tom Hanks all identify as really struggling with imposter syndrome. Um, and I'll admit to it as well. In fact, I'll admit even to the layer that I call Christian imposter syndrome. And that's that fear that what if I'm just not able to do what God has asked me to do? Now, here's the funny thing. So objectively, I should be qualified to stand here right now. I've been studying the scriptures since I was a little girl. I've been leading Bible studies since high school. I've got a master's degree in biblical studies. I'm in a doctoral program for ministry right now. And, and now I'm the pastor of spiritual formation at this church. So I shouldn't be doubting that I've got the qualifications to do it. But I totally am. I completely am struggling with confidence to be here right now, even with you warm, friendly ladies. But do you know what's given me the courage to be here? It's, it's not my qualifications. It is the verses that we're going to study today. What we're going to see in 2 Corinthians 3 and beyond is what means everything to me and has given me the encouragement to be in ministry. Some of these verses are my very favorite verses in the whole Bible, and that's why I'm so excited and even confident to stand here and open up God's word with you today and share its wisdom and truth. My hope for today is that you too will be greatly encouraged by 2 Corinthians. 
after these past couple of years of, of transition and upheaval, I just have this sense right now that God is calling us to steady ourselves, to go onward, to move forward, to go onward as individuals, to go onward as a church, to go onward as a society. And as I read 2 Corinthians, I feel great encouragement to keep going, to go onward in life and in ministry and in faith in the work of God. Do any of you need some of that encouragement with me this morning? I <laughs> hear it right away. Do you need to go onward in what God is asking you to do? Do you need to go onward despite physical hardships? Do you need to go onward in hope? Well, here's what we're going to find today in 2 Corinthians 3 through 5. We are going to find confidence to do what God asks us to do. We're going to find peace in godly transformation. We're going to find strength in hardships. We're going to find hope in eternity. And we're going to find joy in seeing others come to Christ too. How's that sound? All right. But like you, some of you might need this, like, like you, like me. So let's dive in. Chapter three begins with probably the perfect antidote for imposter syndrome. That feeling that you're just never quite good enough or qualified enough or competent enough. So let's begin by pressing onward together in God's confidence. Apparently, when Paul was writing this, there was background tension between Paul and the Corinthian church. The Corinthians wanted Paul to prove his qualifications to them. There was some rivalry that was building. There were other teachers that were coming in and competing a little bit with his message. And the Corinthians wanted him to send a letter of recommendation. And that was a standard practice in the Greco-Roman world. You know, it was a, a time when you couldn't just Google someone, you couldn't check up on their CV or resume. So it was common to carry a letter of recommendation from a respected person, that person who could vouch for you and affirm that you were credible, you were, you were someone that was worth listening to. So chapter one begins in verse one saying, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. You, this is the Corinthian church, you show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but tablets of human hearts. So Paul here is demonstrating that he feels neither that he needs to prove himself or that he needs the church to prove themselves. Rather, he points with confidence to Christ's work in the Corinthian church. And then next, we're going to see his confidence in God's work in his own life. Verse 4 begins, such confidence we have before God. Not that we are confident in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves but our confidence comes from God. He has made us confident as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. So I would not be here. I would not be a pastor at this church. I would not be standing in front of you today if it weren't for these verses. When I was first approached about taking this position right now, I knew I needed to spend significant time in prayer and, uh, and time with God thinking about this before I made any decisions. I didn't think that it was something that I was uh, brave enough to do, but
But on staff, each of us are encouraged to take a spiritual retreat day, one day a month, and just spend some time with God, reflecting on scripture. And of course, as God would have it, the chapter that came up in my personal devotions that day was 2 Corinthians 5 or 3. And it was these verses that reassured me that as I go forward in ministry, it's not confidence in myself, but it's confidence in God, that he is our sufficiency and the strength for everything that we do. And then anything of quality is a reflection of the confidence that he gives to us, that I don't need to waste any energy on imposter syndrome or building up qualifications because it's all about him and what he's doing in and through us. Look at those verses again. Such confidence we have through Christ before God, not that we're confident in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our confidence comes from God. He has made us confident as ministers of a new covenant. This same confidence is available to all of you as well. One of the most wonderful themes that we're going to see in this book over and over and over is the encouragement to press onward, not despite our weaknesses, but because of it, so that Christ's strength can shine through. God's so good that he wants to shine through us. You might not feel shiny all of the time, but he is. And rather than worrying if you're enough for him, let him be enough through you. The rest of chapter three continues to encourage us in this because of the incredible glory of the spirit. And it ends with one of the most encouraging verses that lets us be at peace because we don't have to strive so hard to be trying to make something of ourselves. We can be at peace because the spirit is at work within us, seeking to transform us into women who increasingly reflect Christ. So let's go onward in the Spirit's surpassing glory. We have much to gain from recognizing the surpassing glory of God's Holy Spirit. In verses 7 and 8, Paul references a story about Moses after he'd been up on Mount Sinai in God's presence receiving the tablets that contain the Ten Commandments. Exodus 34 tells us that when he came down off the mountain, having been in God's presence, his face literally shone with the glory of God. It was so powerful that the Israelites wouldn't even look at him and asked him to cover his face with a veil. And Paul here in this part of chapter three is pointing out that if the temporary way that Moses's face shone was enough to impact the Israelites, can you even imagine how much more incredible it will be to see the glory of God's spirit directly. Verse 11 says, and if what was transitory came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? If the phenomenon with Moses was impressive and that glory faded off his face, how much more is the impressive glory of the spirit that will never leave you? And here's where it continues to get really encouraging for us. Paul's going to mention the concept of a veil again. And he says that people who are not yet believers in Christ essentially have a veil between them and God. They might hear scripture, they might hear about God, but they're not really seeing the fullness of its truth and its beauty because of this veil. But verse 16 says, whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Isn't that good news? And here's some more good news. And we, who with unveiled faces, when we contemplate the Lord's glory, we are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, 
who is the spirit. Here's why this is good news. As we look to the spirit, as we keep our eyes fixed on God, he is able to continually make us more like Christ. Thinking back to the beginning of this chapter, this transformation isn't dependent on our qualifications or the recommendations of others. It comes through God and his incredible glory. Well, are any of you guys gardeners like me? Yeah, several of you. I have a large flower and vegetable garden that I love, although I don't have nearly enough time to enjoy it in the chapter of my life that I'm in right now. But some of my very favorite flowers over the years have been the ones that move throughout the day as their blooms follow the sun. The most obvious one are the sunflowers, right? As we turn our faces to God, no matter where we are, and keep our face fixed, pointed to God, our unveiled face, it's his glorious spirit that is able to warm us with the light of his glory, that's able to transform us, to help us to grow more like people, like his son, Jesus Christ. And on a cold, dreary day like today, what could be better than focusing on his glorious light? So as we look to God, this glory transforms us into people who shine with the presence of God, even better than it did Moses. His face literally shone. But as we reflect Christ, we shine as people who have been transformed in the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Have you ever stopped to realize how people who are exceptionally filled with the fruit of the Spirit seem like they have shining faces? They've spent a lot of time gazing at the glory of God. Well, if you need another reason why this is really good news, we're going to see more of that in chapter four. The next verses start, therefore, meaning it's building on everything we've just seen. Since through God's mercy, we have this ministry, we don't lose heart. Because of this incredible gift of being able to boldly look to God, to be transformed by the glory of his spirit, we don't lose heart. We'll lose heart in what? Paul says we don't lose heart in our ministry. And maybe you're saying, well, that sounds great for you, Svea, but I'm not in ministry. Oh, yes, you are. <laughs> if you are a follower of Jesus, you are in ministry. You might not be getting paid for it right now, but every time you show someone kindness and seek to show them the kindness of God, you're in ministry. Every time you seek to meet someone's need, the way that God has met your needs, you're ministering to them. Here's, here's your fun fact for the day. You know the name of this soup, minestrone? It comes from the root word to minister. Every time you give someone a bowl of soup and show them the hospitality of God, you're ministering to them. And yet we all know that sometimes we grow really weary of all of that ministering, don't we? But Paul is reminding us here that we can take heart and we can steady ourselves by looking into the face of the Spirit and his surpassing glory. Immediately after this verse, he's going to make an incredibly beautiful point about us getting our encouragement to not lose heart because of the work of the Spirit within us. But now he's going to head off what is probably our most likely objection. What about when all of this ministering just doesn't feel effective? Everything I'm doing is running up into frustrations or roadblocks, or it's just discouraging, or, or it's just plain dark. Well, let's find some encouragement to go onward in hardship. And before we go back to the scriptures, let's just acknowledge the reality of this. 
Because all of us who want to be disciples of Jesus, who want to serve as he served and and please him with our lives, at some point or even at multiple points, we're going to get frustrated and hit the wall with what feel like roadblocks. And while it seems nice to say that we don't have to feel like everything we do is dependent on us because of the glory of the spirit at work within us, what do we do when we are just hitting the wall? Well, Paul, in modeling his approach to ministry for us in chapter four, how he approached sharing the gospel is really helpful for us. Rather than getting sucked up in frustrations and hardship, he kept his eyes fixed on God. Building on the points he just made in chapter three, he reminds us, if not himself, that because of his confidence comes through God, because God is the one doing the work of transformation in people's lives, we don't lose heart. In chapter four, he talks about his ministry of sharing the gospel quite plainly. He doesn't need to deceive anyone or to distort his message. He can just freely proclaim the truth about Jesus Christ. And if people don't believe, it's that veil that has blinded their eyes. It says the God of this age, or Satan, has blinded them to keep them in darkness. But fortunately, our God is a God of light. Do you have a a friend or a family member that doesn't know God and you've been telling them for years, you want so much for them to come to faith and it just hasn't happened yet? Paul's words here remind us that that person might not yet be able to see or comprehend the truth of salvation because it is the God of this age that has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they can't see the light of the gospel. But here's... I should say, actually, you might say, where is the encouragement for us in that? That doesn't sound at first like it would be very encouraging, but it is good for us to remember that the work of salvation is not dependent on our shoulders. We are not the ones who get to make it happen or not. And it is encouraging to know that it is the work of God. It is the work of Christ, not your burden to bear. Your job is simply to point people to Jesus. And that's why it makes sense that Paul next says, for what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, and ourselves as servants for Jesus' sake. What we preach is not ourselves. Again, like our confidence in what he's asked us to do, it's not about our own qualifications. It's not our own skills, but God's work working within us. Paul goes on to explain this saying, For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. The devil may have placed a veil in front of the face of your loved one, but our God, the one whose very first recorded words were, let there be light. And there was. There's hope for anyone, even the person who seems deeply lost in darkness. God's light can still reach them. Do you remember Paul's own conversion story? Think back to the significant turning point for Paul. He was so hostile to Jesus Christ that he was literally killing Christians. But as he was on that road to Damascus, what happened? It was the light that began to shine on him. It was so blinding, it knocked him to his feet. And in that moment, he heard the words of Jesus and he was forever changed. That veil lifted off his heart. And what's really fascinating to me here is that Paul could have used that story to illustrate his point here about someone in darkness being veiled, then being blinded by the light, but he doesn't. 
Instead, he points to God's creation account of let there be light, something that all of us stand to benefit rather than just Paul himself. It's like he's making the point really clearly. It's not about me. It's not about my story. This is about God's work within us all. I think that's pretty awesome. It's interesting then that Paul's next comments is going to help us realize that we're all imperfect people. Like he didn't want to point too much to himself. We all are imperfect, frail human selves. That's why he says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Beautifully mature Christians are secure in the glory of God. And they don't seem very interested in trying to prove anything about themselves or to try to make themselves look good. A clay jar was just the common storage container of Paul's day. They'd store water and store oil, whatever they needed to store. A clay jar was just kind of normal, like today's Tupperware. And so as he's pointing out, like my body is just a clay jar. It's like us saying, we're just Tupperware. You know, we're just everyday common, the kind of thing you're putting your leftovers in. And he's not meaning any disrespect to God, but rather to prove that point, there's nothing fancy about us. But God's glory, we have this treasure inside of us. And so if you're connecting with something, it's God's work that's shining through our Tupperware. <laughs> it's taking all that pretense away. And again, making the point that we have this treasure of God's miraculous light. Now, even though we have this miraculous light shining in and through us, it doesn't mean that everything is going to be happy and bright. It's not. And we shouldn't expect it to be. And so Paul now acknowledges the realities of suffering and conflict and pain in our lives. We are hard pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. Now, when I was first studying these verses, these seemed a little bit out of place to me. Does it, does it seem kind of out of left field for anyone else? Because so far, Paul's been talking about this glory, this, this work of what we do for Christ, not being from ourselves, but in God's power. He's been talking about keeping our faces turned to God because the glory of the Spirit is transforming us into the image of Christ. And, and then because of all of that, we don't need to lose heart. So all of a sudden, we get these verses about being, being struck down and pre hard-pressed and... Abandoned, but not abandoned. What encouragement do you think he was meaning for us to find in this? Well, rather than tell you what I think right now, I actually want you to discuss that in your small group's time. You'll see there's a question on your discussion sheet that's going to tee that discussion up for you. But let me give you some thoughts that will prime the pump a little bit. One of the number one reasons why people walk away from their faith is suffering. One of the best tricks that the devil has to make us feel that we're back in darkness is hardships. To make us question the goodness of God, to get us to lose heart. So think on these things a little bit as we keep talking, and then I'd love for you to discuss that with your group. The verse right after this says, we always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. And this verse too might not seem connected. It's not immediately apparent what this one might mean, but there's something super cool about this. Let's go back, look at the previous ones. We're hard pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. 
persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. But do you know who was? That's the wrong way. Jesus. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God. He was the one stricken and afflicted. He was the one pierced for our transgressions. He was the one crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we're healed. What were his words on the cross? My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? All of these forms of suffering that Paul says we don't have to be destroyed by were the forms of suffering that Jesus willingly endured on our behalf. Jesus is suffering and death is what makes the rest of chapter four make sense. For we, uh, still going backwards. For we who are alive are always being given over to the death for Jesus' sake so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. We have everything that Jesus suffered on our behalf at work in us. We can have great encouragement and hope in that. And one of the most amazing things that his death, his work accomplishes in us is the hope that we have in all of eternity. So let's go onward in the hope of eternity. Paul once again encourages us Therefore, we don't lose heart, though outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes on not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. These are some of my most favorite verses in all of scripture. When I was walking through a deep season of grief, missing my first husband, these verses were some of the greatest comfort to me of any in the Bible. To feel that my pain, loss, and grief wasn't meaningless, but it was achieving something far greater. And to reframe the suffering that I was feeling as something that could even be described as light and momentary compared to the eternal glory that would be coming for the rest of eternity was really helpful. And by keeping my eyes fixed on not the circumstances that I could see in front of me, because they didn't make sense, but on what was unseen, kept me from spiraling into despair, kept me from feeling abandoned, crushed, all of the things that Paul says we don't need to feel if we keep our eyes fixed on what is unseen. Chapter 5 adds to this picture by not only encouraging us through the frustrations and the hardships of ministry, it also encourages us by reminding that our own bodies, these temporary, everyday jars of clay or Tupperware containers, if you will, are merely just what we're in in this time. And what awaits us is something so much better. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in was destroyed, we have a building from God an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened, because we don't wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal might be swallowed up by our life. Now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God 
who has given us the spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Have you ever referred to your body as an earthly tent? <laughs> I, I assure you I haven't before. Of course, I didn't call it a Tupperware container either, but there you go. But there's a lot of great parallels to it, isn't it? In a tent, it's a temporary place. We don't expect to live in a tent forever. That's not something that we aspire to. It's not meant to be our permanent home. And living in a tent inevitably comes with discomfort and annoyances. And maybe you're feeling like your earthly tent is a little discomforting and annoying right now too, but it's not all that there is. In the same way, our bodily state is temporary. This is not intended to be our permanent home. But God has secured for us a glorious eternal body that is to come. He's given us the spirit as our deposit on this future eternal body. And whenever we're discouraged about the realities of this present state, whether it's within our own bodies or the seen circumstances around us, fix our eyes on what is unseen so that we are focused on the glory of what is eternal. We live by faith, not by sight. I hope that you find all that we've seen today is tremendously encouraging as I do. And if you don't, I want you to. I want you to know the joy and the peace and the hope of being able to shrug off your insecurities, your struggles, your sense of wasting away and feeling strengthened and enlightened by the glory of God within you. And the ache that I have in my heart for you all is to have at this point, I want you to know these things. And I think if I'm feeling that, how much more was Paul feeling that at this point as he's writing this letter? And so it just makes perfect sense to me that in the rest of chapter five, uh, five he's going to say Christ's love compels us. And so let's go. Let's go onward and wanting Christ for others. Let me just read the rest of this beautiful chapter to you. It's a little bit longer, but if you'd like, you could just close your eyes and listen. Of course, you can certainly follow along in your Bible if you prefer. But verse nine starts, so we make it our goal to please him. We make it our goal to please him, whether we're at home in the body or away from it. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. For Christ's love compels us because we're convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us this message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There's so much that could be said about this text, but because the direction that I've been approaching these three chapters from has been encouragement, let me highlight for you the things that I find to be particularly encouraging here. If anyone is in Christ, the old has gone. We're not chained to our past or the things from before. That loved one that we're seeking to know God, if that veil is lifted, all of that is transformed into the new. 
I find encouragement in the continuation of Paul's theme that all that God is doing is not dependent on us to accomplish it, but on himself to accomplish it. Verse 18 says, all of this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. Everything we've seen today is from God. It's God who is the one who reconciled us to himself through Christ. It's God who is at work in your loved one. This is such good news, especially for those of us who feel like we have to work really hard to earn our place with God, to please him. Those of us who fear that we're maybe not good enough, we are able to do what God has asked us to do because it is God who is reconciling us to himself through Christ. And God is not counting people's sins against them. Pastor Rick has often said that this is his favorite thing in all of scripture, that chapter five of 2 Corinthians is his favorite chapter in all of the Bible. And I think maybe today you see a little bit more why you might say that. When you truly let the beauty of these verses sink deeply into your heart, you want others to know this too. It's why he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. And so we ache to say to anyone who doesn't understand the beautiful encouragement that we have in Christ, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. I'm going to pray in a minute, and after I do, I'm going to hang out right here. And if you're not sure if you have been reconciled to Christ, or maybe you're doubting that, I would love to talk with you. If the glorious light of the spirit right now just feels like it's shining on you, don't ignore that. Don't hide it. Let me, let me help you process that. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your incredible glory, the light that you are shining on us, the strength that you give us, and the confidence that we can have to do whatever it is that you're asking us to do because it's not dependent on our frailty or our weakness, but on you and who you are. I pray now that you would bless our discussions in our small groups and that you would use the collective wisdom of your word and the encouragement to these ladies to see you in it, to grow us today into people who more reflect your son. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, sweet sisters, go be ambassadors of Christ and encourage each other. I'll be up here, and if this is your first time joining us today, please do stop by the table so that we could meet you and make sure that we get you to your small group where it's located. Have a good morning.